Well, yeah, to me, it's really great to have you here. Um, you've come, and we're kicking off a new series today, so you've picked a great week to come along. Um, you might see in your pews around you these little booklets called The Voice of the King. This is going to be a great resource for you as we start this new series. If you haven't got one and you'd like one, could you chuck your hand up and maybe some legend at the back could, oh, bless you, Steph, you absolute champ. We'll get a couple of those around. Um, we are beginning this series to, to walk through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. We've called it the voice of the King because Jesus, as he steps into this world, ushers in an eternal kingdom that completely changes everything. And as we get to consider his life, ministry, the words that he's spoken, we get to come face to face with the King who has changed everything. And so it's going to be a really great opportunity perhaps if you've been a believer for a long time, to be refreshed in the Jesus that saved you and died for you. And if you're still working out faith, this is a really great opportunity for you to come face to face with the center of everything that is Christianity, and we'd argue is the center of all things. You might be thinking, Nick, why are we starting at Matthew chapter 8? That's a weird place to start a series. And you know what? You would be correct. But if you were here six years ago, anyone? Hey, legend, six years ago, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters five through seven, and we're just going to keep on rolling. We're just going to keep having the good times. Um, But don't worry, you haven't missed out by starting at this point. It's actually a really natural part to join in. The first four chapters, we get the beginnings of the gospel. We get the birth of Jesus and the inauguration of his ministry. You get chapters five to seven, you get the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the kingdom manifesto. And then chapter eight, where we're going to kick off, that's where we really get to see Jesus in his ministry. Okay? So it's going to be a fantastic moment. I really want to challenge you, use this. I personally, not a note-taking kind of person in sermons. My challenge for you, though, is if you were to come most weeks in this series and just write down even just a couple of things that God was speaking to you, At the end, you'll be able to just flick through and you have a journal of God speaking and moving in your life. That's an incredible gift. So if you'd like a pen or a book, we'll get that for you while the Bible is being read. And we're going to kick it off from Matthew 8 in a moment. Lionel's going to jump up and he's going to read the Bible for us. Thanks, Lionel. Our Old Testament reading tonight is from Isaiah chapter 53. That's on page 634 of the Black Bibles. In this part of Isaiah's vision, he's speaking of a figure called God's servant. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him 
and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our New Testament reading is from Matthew, as we start our series, Matthew chapter 8. It's on page 833 of the Black Bibles. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lionel. Beautifully read. My question for us this evening, my question for you this evening, who is Jesus to you? I really want you to actually think about it. Who is Jesus to you? 
If you're not sure, you're not, not yet a Christian, not a believer, well, you're in the right place. But even if you are, who is Jesus to you? Some of the words that might come to mind is that he's, he's the Lord, right? We, we confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the center of the gospel. True, yes and amen. Maybe you think he's the Savior. He died on a cross to forgive us from our sin. He rose from the dead, declaring his power over death, sin, and all the terrible things of this world. Yes, completely true. Amen. Maybe you'd think king. Yeah, that's the right answer. It's on the booklet, right? The voice of the king. He's the king. All of these things are completely true, but they're not quite what I'm asking for. Who is Jesus to you? Let me rephrase it another way. Do you know Jesus personally? Do you know his character, his personality, his his quirks, the things that, that make him him. It's so important that we remain rooted in all of those big truths about God. But when Jesus died on that cross to save you and forgive you from your sins, he didn't just rescue you to then just go off and live life on your own. He rescued you to restore you to himself. You were made a child of the living God and drawn into relationship with him. And so your life now on earth, as John 15 says, is to abide in Christ, to in some senses be one with God, just like Father, Son, and Spirit are one in Himself. It's incredible. And where is all eternity going? We're going to a wedding where the Lamb of God, who is Jesus, who died for the sins of the world, is married to the church, His bride, and they become one in this beautiful union. Your destiny is to be with Jesus forever. And so I guess my question is still still here. Do you know Jesus personally in the sense that you have been saved into a relationship with Him? My hope is that today and in this series... We can come and just see Jesus again with fresh eyes to to learn the theological truths that we need to believe and build our faith upon, but equally to be captivated by the man, the God who loves us, who rescued us and who saved us. Does that make sense? I want you and I want me to come to a greater understanding and experience of Jesus, the person who loves us and died for us. So we're going to do that today. If you haven't got your Bibles open, you're going to want to do that. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at three healings and one call, because that's really what the text is. Three healings and one call. The first one is this healing of leprosy. Check out 8 verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Now, what does that mean? Chapters 5 through 7, Jesus has just preached, I think, the greatest sermon of all time, right? It's the Sermon on the Mount probably the most talked about, quoted, thought through sermon that continues to have ripples today in our society and make some people angry, make some people happy, whatever it is. It's very, very central. He's just preached the greatest sermon of all time. He's come down from the mountain and it doesn't just say that a large crowd was following him. It says large crowds, multiple. He has got so many people clamoring for his attention because they've seen something in this Jesus they want to grab hold of. Right, if he's in the Instagram age, he's just hit influencer levels. He can quit his day job and make money off making those cheesy ads that people pay people to do. Apparently, LeBron James, anyways, we won't go there. You make a lot of money on Instagram, okay? He has got the world at his fingertips fame, wealth, influence, power, anything that he wants. He comes down from this mountainside, and what does he do? Verse two A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. 
and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I just think this is incredible. Who is the Jesus who reigns over the entire universe, who is seated on a throne at the right hand of God? He is the God, the man who would stop all of the attention that he's receiving to focus on this man with leprosy. He's filled with compassion. He's tender. He's kind. He's present. He's attentive. It's incredible. And when you start to really understand what leprosy is, you realize how significant this is. Leprosy was a skin disease in the ancient world, which was effectively a living death sentence. It was displayed on your body, and when you saw the skin disease that was there, you knew that person marked for death. It's really quite gruesome. You would, your limbs and parts of your body would begin to get disfigured until some of them might even fall off on your journey to death. Um, so you live with this wasting sickness that will take your life slowly. More than that, you, because you've got this skin disease that everyone can see and because it's contagious, you're kicked out of your family and your community and your village or wherever you live and forced to live in isolation just with the risk of potentially bringing that disease to someone else. So not only are you condemned to death with a disease that takes its toll on your body, you're removed from all your loved ones who might support you through that. And in the Old Testament, you were considered ceremonially unclean, and so your, your ability to go and relate to God and be a part of church like this in the ancient Old Testament equivalent, completely removed. You're dying, you're alone, and you feel distant from God. Doesn't really sound much worse could happen. <laughs> I mean, we'd, we'd start to lose it after two weeks of COVID isolation. This, this is a life. These people, as they walk around in Leviticus 13, it says whenever they see a healthy person coming near them, they, they have to yell out, unclean, so that that healthy person won't get close enough to get sick. This is a terrible existence. And our Jesus is the one who sees this man and stops and pays attention to him. It's incredible. Michael Green, in his commentary on Matthew, said, never has there been a condition that so illustrated the spiritual condition of humankind. I'll read that again. Never has there been a condition that so illustrated the spiritual condition of humankind. If you've been at all struck by this picture of leprosy, that's you and me before the living God. Dying, alone, without a hope of relating to God. And so as Jesus relates to this man, we don't just see an, a momentary act of compassion, which we do. We also see the tenderness and compassion with which he treats you and me. The way he loves upon you, knowing your uncleanness, knowing your specific guilt and shame and sin and the things that remain hidden to everyone else but don't remain hidden to God as he looks at you. You see the compassion and tenderness that, that he has. And what does Jesus do in response to the leper? Verse 3 I love this. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. In the next story that we're about to go to, we realize Jesus, he can just speak a word and it'll happen. He doesn't even need to see someone to heal him. He's, this is the word that was with God and is God at the beginning, who created all things and holds all things together. He has the power to heal in any way that he chooses. But how does he heal this man with leprosy? He reaches out and he touches him. And everyone that's watching just gasps. Oh no, the guy that just preached the best sermon we've ever heard is dying because he just got leprosy, right? It's, 
It's brilliant that Jesus could have healed him in any way, but instead chose to touch this man, presuming that he's never been touched in years, to have the tender, loving hand laid upon him of his Savior who will heal him. It's incredible. And this moment, if this is the spiritual condition of humankind, this moment where Jesus should be infected as he touches this man, instead the reverse is true. The purity of Jesus finds its way into this leper and he's completely cleansed before everyone. And before you and I, as we see anyone who comes to Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. And he says, I am willing. I don't know... Who needs to hear this? But there is nothing so unclean in you that Jesus can't cleanse. I don't need to know the, the circumstances of your life or the things you're wrestling with. I can say with certainty that Jesus is willing and capable of cleansing you of everything. No more room for guilt. No more room for shame. He's there for you. When I first became a Christian, I had a moment where I gave my life to Christ and I was like, yeah, God, generic, you, I'm sorry for all my sin. Please forgive me. Receive the Lord. Peace washed over me. And now I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to heaven and things are good. But as the years go on, I realized that there was sin in my life that I was consistently wrestling with. And I felt, um, dirty is probably the, the right word, guilty. I felt shame-filled. I felt like these were things that I couldn't tell to anyone and they were things that meant I was not good enough for God. I don't know if anyone resonates where, yes, I know that there was a moment here where I gave my life to Christ, but I'm still wrestling. And because I feel so unworthy, I keep God at a distance. But it's only when I realized that, that Jesus in his compassion, knowing everything about us, everything within our souls, is just waiting for us to come so that he can cleanse us and love us from that guilt and that shame and, and to ultimately bring us to a place of perfection in eternity where we can be with him forever. It's life-giving that Jesus is not sitting in the sky, that old school teacher who, who's got the cane ready to hit you because you're doing bad things, but instead is a compassionate saviour who loves you and is waiting there to love you incredibly. Do you believe that Jesus cares deeply about you? And I mean you specifically, you individually. Yes, Jesus died to save the whole world. But as we prayed in that Thanksgiving prayer, he chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. And he loves you so richly. That's healing one. Healing two, the centurion servant. Keep your Bibles open from verse five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Noted, this is a centurion. Uh, that really just means that he's an officer in the Roman army who has responsibility in some sense. We don't know specifics, but what we can say is that he is a Gentile. Jesus has devoted the, the bulk of his ministry to reaching Israel, the Jewish people, because they were the chosen ones in the Old Testament. And so this is kind of a, an interesting occurrence that Jesus begins to relate to this man that you wouldn't expect. He reaches out saying, you know, my servant lies at home paralyzed. And I love this. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Should we go to your place now? Why don't, why don't you just lead the way and, and open the door and I'll come into your home and we'll, we'll heal your servant. Let's, let's get it done. It's incredible because Jewish and Gentile people didn't mix. Jewish people certainly didn't enter into Gentile homes, but Jesus has come to bring compassion and life to the whole world. And so it's a real genuine offer. 
But then the centurion has this incredible amount of faith. And just look at this, verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. He sees Jesus completely, truly, with clarity. He sees the Messiah. He sees the risen one that to come. He sees the powerful God that Jesus is. And he says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. And he's true. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. I myself am a man under authority and I you know, say this, it happens, you do this, it happens. And I know that you can do the same. What is he saying here? He's saying, I'm a Roman officer and I have power over other soldiers. I can tell them to do stuff and they'll do it. You, Jesus have ironclad authority over the universe. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you can speak from a distance and my servant who's never met you before will begin to walk from their paralysis. Jesus, you are all powerful and your authority encompasses the entire world as I know it. This is an astounding man of faith who sees Jesus completely true. Do you see Jesus like that? Do you realize that this Jesus that we're talking about is not just a historical figure, he is the eternal God who is holding you together right now, as we sang before, whose breath fills your lungs. He has ironclad authority over all things. He speaks and this servant is made well. But incredibly, this God of immense power chooses to direct his authority to save an unknown servant boy because he's the God who cares about the lowly. He's the God who is interested in binding up the broken and taking upon himself the iniquity and sin, but equally the sickness and disease of others. Don't don't lose sight of this. Jesus is all-powerful and deserving of all honor and worship. One day, every knee will bow before him And yet he equally, in that power and authority, looks upon you with tenderness and compassion to bring healing to your life. So healing number three, Peter's mother-in-law, or Mill, as I like to call her, mother-in-law. I tried to call my mother-in-law that once. It didn't go very well, so I'm not going to try it again. But look from verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. I love this because Jesus just walks into Peter's home and nobody asks him to do anything. Nobody says, hey, Peter's mom is is unwell. You should come and heal her. No, he simply sees her and immediately moves to heal her. And you might be thinking, oh, she's just got a fever. Just pop a cup of Panadol and she'll be sweet. You'd be probably true. But in the ancient Near East, a fever likely meant your death. They didn't have the medicine and the understanding to stop it at times. And so this is a life-threatening disease, and Jesus just walks in and in a single verse, a single sentence, heals her. And again, notice the way that he, he touched her hand. You can just picture Jesus, excuse me, sitting beside your hospital bed as you lie there awaiting your death, and he just crouches down beside you and puts his hand upon you in love, and immediately the fever leaves you. It's incredible. This is personal. This is compassionate. This is who Jesus is. And verse 16 or verse 15, immediately she got up and began to wait on him. Now, this isn't just a patriarchal moment where the women need to do things and they weren't ready to have dinner because she was in bed and now she can make the dinner. That's not what's happening. Instead, because she's been completely set free from this fever and Jesus has delivered her, what's her immediate response? Get up and serve him. 
That's the gospel. Jesus offers everything. You don't need to bring anything to him. But when he rescues you and sets you free, he puts your feet down for you to go and serve him with your whole life. It's incredible. Are you seeing this? Who is Jesus? Jesus is immensely powerful, authoritative over all things, with a word can change the cosmos, and yet looks upon individual lowly people like you and I with compassion and tenderness and devotes his ministry and really his whole entire earthly existence to serving you, to serving me, to offering love. It's incredible. Jesus is greater than we could ever imagine, but not just greater in his might and things that we would normally associate with greatness. He's great in his humility, in his kindness, his tenderness, in his love. Who do you think Jesus is? Is that who you've experienced Jesus to be? Well, I hope as we keep walking this journey, we're going we're gonna to encounter him in this way and you'll experience him more and more in this compassion and love that he has for you. But given that we've just spent these past few minutes talking about healing, I think it's important that we actually talk, talk about healing, right? It's, it's going to continually come up throughout the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus healing people and that being a mark of the kingdom that has come. Matthew's big theme is the kingdom and the king who brings it. And a part of that is miraculous healing being brought to those who are chronically ill. So I got to ask the question, should we seek miraculous healing? Is that what it means as part of following Jesus? Well, the answer is in some ways, yes. I don't think Matthew is given to us as a boring history textbook to go, yeah, there was once a guy called Jesus and did some cool things, but then he went back to heaven. No, this is an account to show us that the kingdom has come in Jesus and we are awaiting his return, but his kingdom remains and it breaks out into this world. We should expect the gospel to take life in life today. The book of Acts, I would argue, is not an exception to the rule, but the continuity of the gospel. The early church experiencing healing and miracles as God is declared glorious through them. You come to 1 Corinthians 12, and in these lists of gifts that the Spirit gives the church, the gift of healing and of miracles is listed there. It's a part of it. You come to James chapter 5, and it says, whenever anyone is sick, have them come forward, and the elders will anoint them with oil and pray for them. And the, the rationale that's given is, look at Elijah. When he prayed, fire came down. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. It's not like a, oh, we should pray because God's powerful. Maybe he'll do it. It's, there's an expectancy and I, I want to ask, do we pray like that? Is, that? is that how we operate as a church? Is that how you operate as an individual or me, that we believe that God is interested in healing people and bringing his divine power to bear on our lives? I think there's a challenge there. And yet, at the same time, we also need to wrestle with the question, should we expect God to always heal? Should we expect God to turn up in power as we, you know, fulfill the right formulae? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful, so therefore everyone will always be healed. Let's go. Let's go heal the world. Well, the answer is no. 2 Corinthians 12, you've got Paul wrestling with what he describes as a thorn in his flesh. It's not really explicitly stated what he means, but he prayed to God three times, please, Lord, take it away. And the Lord said to him, no, my grace is sufficient for you in weakness. God is not just interested in healing our physical bodies so that we can die again. He's trying to make us fit for eternity. He's more interested in the Apostle Paul's circumstance of forcing him to lean upon God in his weakness and therefore be made more like Jesus than he is in just simply healing or removing the problem. 
You come to James chapter 1, and you've got these trials that are afflicting the church, and James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. You know, like, I don't want to consider anything joyful that hurts, but we consider it joy. Why? Because they are the refining fire that forges holiness and godliness and character and dependence upon Jesus. And if God was simply to heal us all of all our afflictions whenever we need it, well, really, he's actually doing us a disservice because what we need most is not wholeness in this world, but holiness for the world to come. We could go on. This whole section of Revelation dedicated to the martyrs who were murdered for their faith. Well, that doesn't sound productive when God wants to heal us all from our physical ailments. You've got 2 Corinthians 1 where you've got Paul despairing of life itself and that being a moment in which God is still doing a work. Our God is not interested in giving us comfort but in making us holy. And so we find ourselves in a weird place of holding two things in tension. We see the miraculous. We're called to pray for healing. We're we're told that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. We've got the book of Acts. We've got, I've sat with cancer patients who just completely perplexed their doctors because their cancer has been entirely removed as an act of miraculous healing from the Lord. I've sat with Christian doctors who have sat in so many different scenarios just where their whole colleagues are just completely perplexed and they say, well, I know what it is. It was a, I saw the Christian family laying hands on them and praying for them. And so we've seen miraculous. You know, we have that truth here. And yet at the same time, there are so many of us who ourselves or people in our lives are still wrestling with chronic illness or pain or disability or anything for years. And God hasn't taken it away. We live with tension. And we have to live with tension. We can't just tie it up in a nice bow and say, here's the theology on healing. We need to live in the place of God being God. The kingdom has come in Jesus, but it's also coming when he returns. We live in a place of tension. Let me tell you a story of Joni Erickson Tada. Tada, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but she's an incredible woman. It's her story of not being healed. When she was 17, she was a promising young athlete, and one of the things she was into was diving. It's terrifying to me of jumping off high places for fun. Not for me, but maybe it's for you. In any case, she, she tried a, a particularly complex dive and landed in a way that hit her neck wrong and she was left a quadriplegic. At 17, her, her future hopes of athleticism and career and all those things that would have come with it, her whole life just shattered around her. She was a Christian, so she searched through her Bible and read through all of these different passages around paralysis because Jesus encounters a few different paralytic people and heals them. And she said, well, look, God heals the paralyzed So God will heal me if I can position myself in the right place. So she kind of went on like a healing tour of the US and kind of went to every healing service and revival moment and all these things that were put on. There were some big Pentecostal healers that were out there. She went to all of them. And yet every single time, no healing. Still quadriplegic. She said this, God has taught me that he wants to display his power in my life in far more glorious ways than if I were to jump out of this wheelchair. It's incredible. She came to peace by going back to those same passages around paralysis and seeing the instance where Jesus says, is it easier for me to say this man's sin is forgiven or get up and walk? And she realized it's not as important if I can walk, it's more important that my sin is forgiven and I'm right and whole with God. And so from that moment, she dedicated her life to a ministry, to people like her, people wrestling with chronic pain, chronic illness, debilitating disease, disability, all sorts of things. 
She, she's been to the White House. She's been on boards with the president. Like she's been, had this amazing influential position to preach Jesus in places that she never would have otherwise. But that's not even what she means when she says that there are better things for God to display through her illness. Listen to this quote. It's incredible. She says, A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It's all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. Isn't that incredible? To be bound in a wheelchair for five decades and to say, this wheelchair has done me wonders because it's brought me deeper healing in Christ. Now, if you're sitting here and you are living with any sort of illness, pain, disability, you've asked God and he hasn't healed. I want you to hear really clearly. This is not simply a, you don't have enough faith. You need to pray harder. That is so damaging. And and many lives have been shattered by that terrible false teaching. Perhaps what God is doing, and it's not easy to hear, but perhaps it's true. Perhaps God is doing a deeper healing in you as he says no to your physical healing and instead brings about miraculous change in every other facet of your life. That's why we need to live with this tension. Jesus does bring incredible miracles throughout the Gospels, and he still does in circumstances today. And yet, as we live in this tension between kingdom that's come and kingdom that's coming, we're being formed for heaven. And that's the main game. Jesus doesn't want to just heal you. He wants to make you fit for heaven. So we need to sit in this place that all these people that we've just read about do. We need to be like the the man with leprosy and come to Jesus with clear confidence that he can heal, but say, Lord, if you are willing, then I might be healed. We need to come with the unwavering faith of the centurion that says, you don't even need to come to me, Jesus. Just say a word and I will be healed. But to leave that with God to make that decision. We need to see Peter's mother-in-law and know that that Jesus is the tender, compassionate God who sits at our bedside and puts his hand upon us, who loves us deeply. We need to make space in our church and in our personal lives for a God who is interested in, in breaking through the ordinary and the natural and bringing miraculous healing. We must pray for it. And even if you've been living with something for years, we will keep praying for you. But we also need to be content to allow God to be God because he has a greater purpose and a greater will. And that leads us to the last little section, which will take me just 30 seconds. Have a look at verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is incredibly compassionate and with his power turns it all to your your healing and your cleansing spiritually foremost, potentially physically. But at the end of the day, he stands before each of you and says, will you leave it all behind and follow me? Will you give everything that you are, put it aside, and come and give your life to me. Because in his compassion, he knows that's the greatest thing that we could ever do, to give it all to Jesus.
Let's pray. God Almighty, we are just incredibly grateful to not only know you from a distance, but to have experienced your compassion. Lord Jesus, thank you that you walked on this earth not to be served, but to serve, and that you, you healed and restored so many as, as a promise of restoration to come. We pray you might shape us as believers and as a church to, to believe in faith that you can and do bring powerful miracles in this world, but would you equally give us the unwavering faith to hear your no and continue to follow you anyway? Ultimately, Lord, please let, make this, this 6 p.m. family of people who leave everything behind to follow you because you are greater than anything we could ever possibly leave. We pray all of this to your glory and all that your name might gain all renown.